Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan, the podcast where we pursue big questions. My goal today is to listen and learn just a little bit more. As we head into our conversation, let me invite you to chase life's biggest questions with me, one episode at a time. Dr. Peña Guzman, uh, wonderful to have you here today. Uh, thanks for coming on. I was wondering if we could start with just how did you get into philosophy and what drew your attention to animal uh, minds, animal consciousness, and specifically your book, When Animals Dream? Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, the answer to those two questions are, are are very different because I came to philosophy largely by accident um, <laughs> and out of a sense of wounded pride. When I was uh, an undergraduate uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, mid 2000s, I took a philosophy class without knowing anything about it. And it was the most challenging thing that I had ever done. Uh, most of the text made no sense. I didn't understand what was happening in the discussions. It was a class on early uh, modern philosophy, focusing on Leibniz and Spinoza, which is just a cold shower uh, <laughs> to be given as your first experience of this intellectual tradition. And I just remember thinking, there's no way that this makes sense, or I really need to cover my basis and rise to the challenge of figuring this out. And I thought of myself as a good student who should be able to figure out and crack the mysteries of any text. And so, yeah, my first philosophy class was a complete disaster. And I came back to other philosophy classes because I, I told myself, you need to figure out what's happening here. And over the course of a couple of semesters, it stole my heart, really. Um, I fell in love uh, with philosophy, with the history, with um, the various systems of thought that you find in it. And uh, over time, I decided to make a career out of it by going to graduate school and pursuing a PhD. And that's when I discovered animal philosophy. Mm. So initially by accident, and then through a slow um, ascent into my subsequent area of specialization, which is partly the philosophy of science, partly the philosophy of nature, I, I came to discover that I had this latent lingering interest mm. in the lives of other species that had been there for a long time, but that I had never really thematized, even to myself, really. And philosophy gave me the language to try to figure out what those lingering thoughts or what that lingering interest uh, was. Yeah, I love that your uh, description of that. To me, it always feels like um, I, whenever I thematize something, I'm like working through it. I always want to wrap up all the threads. And then there's always like, at this point in my life, there's like eight, you know, there's 20 different loose threads, but that's what it is, right? <laughs> you start pulling on it and you're like, oh, okay. Uh, and then you try and like, I don't know, knit that into something, you know, <laughs> maybe a little too deep yeah. into the metaphor, but. Uh, well, I don't know. Sometimes it's weaving and then sometimes we're all Penelope from uh, <laughs> the Odyssey unraveling the thing that we've been weaving uh, by day. Because yes. there have been times where, you know, you pull on a thread and you feel like you're going somewhere and then you discover that things are much more complicated than you oh, yeah. initially realized. So then the thread starts fraying. Yes. 
when you thought you were weaving. Uh, and I actually think that that's part of the essence of philosophy, this building up and breaking down um, and advancing and regressing at the same time. And I, and I love that. That's what makes it so, so interesting and thought grabbing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, um, it's funny, even you mentioned, so I grew up independent fundamental Baptist. So uh, forgive me one second. Sorry, it's my seven-year-old. Uh, <laughs> oh, <I'm so> <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, I grew up independent fundamental Baptist and that left me with a lot of questions, as you can imagine. Um, and, uh, one of the things was, uh, and it, so I ended up go going into philosophical hermeneutics and that was, and what the way that that started and yeah, uh, you'll see why I thought of the stories you were talking, um, was that people kept coming to the same text and they kept disagreeing and it became very apparent that they were reading the same things but the reason they were disagreeing were things they weren't even talking about which were philosophical presuppositions so i kept pushing into hermeneutics biblical hermeneutics and uh they the way that they approached things still didn't address what was really going on like i would see what people were disagreeing mm -hmm. on and so i had a, a great teacher uh, i went to a, a college that uh was kind of that was a little bit more open and uh uh i said hey it looks like uh this book truth and method might have some of the answers i'm looking for and he must have been just dying laughing inside because he was like yeah go ahead if you want to do an independent study on that go for it and i read it <laughs> cold turkey and so when you talked about like being in that class and like you start with Spinoza, and yes. I had no idea. I like started reading this and that was for me, that was my journey into philosophy because it was so, I was, I, you know, I'd read for the first time in my life, I was like reading and the words would literally start blurring on the page, you know, and yeah. so. <laughs> well, yeah, there is a yeah. way in which nobody ever has a rational entry into <laughs> philosophy. Um, most people sort of step into what seemed like moving quicksand yeah. and then they get trapped and then, you know, we love it. And there is something about it that speaks to us on a deeply fundamental and deeply personal level. Yeah. Like in your case, uh, reading Gadamer yes. and uh, maybe developing a new way of thinking about interpretation, oh, yeah. religion, faith, uh, so on and so forth. Um, and and uh, yeah, similar things happened to me as I started tasting different uh, philosophical lineages after my first early cold shower with early modern metaphysics, yes, you know, yeah. but I, I remember having similar reactions the first time I, I read psychoanalysis, for instance, just, whoa, I, I didn't realize that this is the kind of discussion that one could have here. Yeah. Um, I also had an, an early class as an undergrad on Derrida, whom you mentioned before right, we right, right. jumped uh, on air, uh, and also a similar reaction. Yes. There. Oh, yeah. He, <laughs> it's a completely different method. And that's kind of the fascinating thing, too, is that when you start pulling on those threads, you, you start running into different methods for different, different problems. And that's also really fascinating. Um, so uh, what led you to write When Animals Dream? So this is my first single authored book. Um, it, I have written book chapters and I've collaborated with other people on um, books related to animals uh, in the past. But I have, a, I have an interest in the philosophy of mind, in the philosophy of consciousness, in the relationship between mind and body, 
in the relationship between spirit and matter or consciousness and matter. That's a more uh, contemporary articulation of that kind of perennial philosophical problem uh, from which people have been pulling all kinds of threads, right. speaking of that textile metaphor. Yes. Um, and I was doing research on animal behavior, animal cognition, when I started to realize that I had some questions about the extent to which we could impute creative mental activity to other animals. Um, to what extent are other animals capable of generating from themselves uh, an experience that we could say they constitute um, through their through their cognitive sensory mental capacities? And uh, I started digging into the philosophy on dreams um, that includes the science of dreams as well as the philosophy of dreams, and. Much to my surprise, I started finding, again, a very, very thin thread um, that I couldn't quite follow, but that I could identify, yeah. um, spread over a very over a very vast body of literature. Um, and I decided that I should be the one to try to pull it to see where it leads, because I came to the realization that there, there was nothing written about the dreams of other animals. Um, and, you know, there are probably good reasons for that. It sounds like a quacky subject. Uh, you know, it just sounds kind of like I'm about to start selling some snake oil <laughs> um, over here. Um, but, but the subject really raises pretty fundamental questions about the nature of mind, about the nature of animals, about the nature of perception, about what mental activity is. And right. so that's what the book is about. It's about looking at animal consciousness by looking at what other species can do, even when they are asleep, you know, in the middle of the sleep of the sleep cycle, there is this generative mental activity that is going on that we call dreams. Right. Yeah. And that part is fascinating. I'd, I'd love to get to that. Uh, were there any other like um, issues that you kind of looked at? I mean, it sounds like you did. Uh, when you talk about creative mental uh, capacity or creative mental acts, are you uh, some of the ones that come to mind are things like language and tools. Is that something that you looked at as well? I have worked on issues related to animal language as well as tool use. Mm -hmm. um, not too long ago, a couple of months ago, I published an article in the journal Animal Law where I develop an argument about animal rights, not so much about animal consciousness, uh, focusing on whales and dolphins and using as one of my key arguments their capacity to use tools, even in a marine environment. Um, so we know that, for example, some dolphins, they will use sponges to protect their, their rostrum when searching for objects in the sand. Um, so it's, a, it's an aquatic water-based tool, wow. which is uh, quite interesting. Um, and uh, many other species also in the sea use the water itself as a tool. So anyways, I, I thought about the problem of tool use, which historically anthropologists have have seen as, as an exclusively human capacity, right? Mm -hmm. One of the definitions of homo sapiens that we find in anthropology is homo faber, um, man the maker or human the maker. And by maker, we mean maker of tools, objects that have uh, practical ends. Um, so I've looked at that and I've also looked at some of the other categories that often are invoked to play that same conceptual role of differentiating humans from other animals, 
For instance, you uh, mentioned language. Other ones are morality, um, abstraction, um, empathy, so on and so forth. And interestingly, dreaming is also one of those categories. Um, and there have been philosophers who have made the argument that, that what marks the difference between humans and other animals is precisely our capacity to dream. Sometimes they mean that metaphorically, like our ability to, to imagine a better future in, in a, perhaps in, in the sense of I have a dream or I dream of a better tomorrow. But sometimes they mean it literally in the sense that we're the only species that can generate dream experiences in the middle of the night. And a lot of my work, what I do is I take these concepts that are often used to police that boundary. And I try to take my, my little axe and I chip away at it. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say that I break them because that's too presumptuous. Um, but I do want to believe that I've made a few little cracks into the concepts here and there. Uh, what's your motivation for doing that? Why this work? The work, I think, has two motors behind it. One of them is just raw curiosity about the really bizarre lives of other animals. I, I, I think we, we don't think about other creatures enough. The fact that there are these other interpretations of life all around us that look at us, that live alongside us, that can develop emotional bonds with us, or that are completely indifferent to us. Um, and just what that tells us about the sheer diversity of nature, um, and uh, what that tells us about organic uh, evolution, what that tells us about the emergence of mind from an otherwise mindless process, again, which is natural selection. And so there, there is this curiosity that drives the project. And so there is a curiosity about the lives of other animals, but also the curiosity specifically about dreams, um, which are in themselves also bizarre. So not only other animals have a weirdness to them, an alienness, maybe that's a better word. They're otherworldly in some way, but then dreams are also otherworldly. They are fantastical. Uh, they have an air of the imaginary. And that's why historically they have lived in the domain of superstition. Um, and that's, you know, that can be the superstition of, of bards, like in myth, or the superstition of priests. Um, there is a lot of references to dreams in the Bible, for example. Um, but also the superstition of philosophers. A lot of metaphysicians have written about dreams in all kinds of ways because they push on the limits of what we think we can know. And so there is the curiosity of putting these two things together. You know, dreams, our dreams are weird. Other animals are weird. A and B adds to a weirdness squared. Um, and so I, I, I was driven largely by that sense of trying to figure out what we can learn about um, other spirits or other souls. Those are somewhat antiquated terms for saying other minds. Um, and, and at the end of the book, I also say that the second motor for, for the book is just my identity as an animal ethicist. I do think that learning more things about the animal mind has moral implications, and it can help us crystallize what moral duties we have in relation to other species. So, so the book closes on a moral note um, that calls for us to rethink human-animal relations. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you you reference it kind of at the beginning beginning of the book with um and I mean, I knew that this is <laughs> I knew it was coming before you even said it and you you've referenced it even here in the interview. Why do we feel the need uh to feel like why do we need to feel special as humans? And that's something I obviously you keep running up against and you see tons of people throwing up things that to be honest, as soon as I hear the arguments, I'm like like homo faber, right? I'm, I know I'm, I'm butchering that pronunciation, but like, obviously animals make things. Like we know that animals make things. So why did we just like, it, it's, it reeks of keto logic to me to use. I think that's a Freudian term. Uh, where does that, where does that uh, come from? Well, and this is where I think it's impossible to have this discussion without taking it at least partially to a political uh, register. Because when you think about why anybody would think that they are special or superior to anybody else, uh, it usually has to do with hierarchies and with the, main, with the maintenance of a particular social and political order. In this case, there is a political order that governs our relationship to other species because sadly, we know that our most common interaction with other animals as a species is at the dinner table. Right, We kill them, and we eat them, and we consume them, and in many cases, we also um, enslave them in uh, laboratories, in zoos, um, and, you know, in, in, and typically for the sake of advancing human interests. And so, yes, the, the commitment to finding something that, says, that sets us apart from the rest of the natural world I think deep down cannot be explained as anything else than a than a convenient rationalization for continuing to treat animals in a particular way. Um, but of course, then those rationalizations are supported in with very sophisticated, sometimes theological, philosophical, scientific arguments. And the problem is that we are so used to, we are so habituated into thinking that we are indeed superior to other animals that we've gotten to a point where making the opposite argument almost sounds counterintuitive. It just cuts against the grain of what we take to be self-evident. Um, but yeah, I think political reasons cannot be overlooked. Absolutely. I, and uh, forgive me for you know kind of slowing down here before we actually talk about your book. Um, at, to me, I just really helped set the stage for what you're doing, right? And uh, so you, you talked a little bit about, I'd, I'd love to kind of get into your book now. Um, talk to us about the evidence for animals dreaming. I loved uh, even the intro with, um, I forgot the octopus's name, but uh, Heidi. Heidi. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, so um, for our listeners who have not looked at the book or read the book, um, the book has, the cover has an octopus in multiple colors, and that's a reference to a true story that is the story of an octopus that was recorded, I believe, having a dream. And what the octopus named Heidi did is that she started displaying these very flamboyant, intense, um, chromatic displays in the middle of her sleep cycle. And many of those displays are we know correlated with certain emotional states and with certain waking behaviors. So they are the kind of display that an octopus would do when awake, when, for example, eating a crab. And so the fact that we're seeing those displays 
happening when the octopus is asleep suggests that that animal is having a dream sequence that probably involves the dream version of that waking behavior. And so I begin the book just by, by painting this picture of a dreaming octopus uh, with this uh, marching progression of colors. And then in chapter one, I make the argument, well, that's just one case. But in fact, the scientific evidence, and that's the thread I talked about earlier, that, I, that it took me a lot to dig through the empirical science in order to find all this evidence that was scattered everywhere, but that nobody had actually put together yet. I, I point out that there is actually quite substantive empirical support for the belief that other animals do in fact recreate a kind of world analog during sleep that they dream. And I, I classified this evidence into a few categories, or I divided into a few categories just for the for the sake of making it more comprehensible. Mm -hmm. And the easiest way to think about it is just to divide it into evidence that has to do with the body, what the bodies of animals do when they're asleep, and then evidence that has to do with the brain. Uh, what are their brains doing when they enter particular stages of the sleep cycle, especially what is called REM sleep, which is typically associated with dream experiences. And just to be very brief about it, because um, I, I, I talk about a lot of species and very different kind of research protocols, I, I point out that when it comes to the body, we know that many animals display what are known as oneric behaviors. That's a scientific term that refers to motoric movements, so movements of limbs, legs, arms, eyes, uh, lips, whatever kind of body part that, that starts moving in the middle of sleep. And often those behaviors, even if they are not very precise, have a very clear structure. They are behaviors that suggest running. You know, we, we have all seen, I assume, uh, a sleeping dog that starts running while horizontal. That's not a random behavior. That is a running behavior while asleep. And in the book, I talk about many other oneric behaviors that scientists really since the 19th century have been recording in other animals. And here we're not talking just about dogs and cats. We're talking about a lot of mammals. We're talking about non-mammalian species as well. I talk about birds. I talk about fish. Mm. And of course, I talk about cephalopods like octopuses. And what's particularly fascinating about uh, cephalopods is that from an evolutionary perspective, they are so distant from us. I mean, they're basically really fancy mollusks, <laughs> um, and, you know, like super like genius mollus uh, mollusks. And so it suggests that dreaming is actually quite widespread in the animal kingdom, much more than maybe any of us would would think at first at first sight. And uh, the second kind of evidence just has to do with brain activity. So I look at a lot of animal neuroscience that shows that when animals fall asleep, their brains display the same patterns of neuronal activation at key moments of the sleep cycle as when they are doing particular behaviors when they're awake. And so I, I think that's, that's one of the most convincing and powerful pieces of evidence, I think, in the book, because it establishes a very clear parallelism between what the mind is doing 
in the waking state and in, in, in the dream state. And did, was there a third one or did I miss that? A third? No, I the think... Two categories. Well, those are the main two. Okay. In the book, I do talk about a third category, which is functional neuroanatomy. And that has to do with experiments um, where scientists will intervene at the level of neuroanatomy by cutting out various parts of the brain in order to see what functions are altered. And in the middle of the 20th century, there were several really important discoveries about animal sleep through these sorts of um, interventions into functional neuroanatomy, including one that showed quite convincingly um, from a French neuroscientist called Michel uh, Jouvet that cats in particular um, have very elaborate dreams and that if you cut out a particular part of their brain, which is the part that basically makes the body go into a state of atonia so that our bodies don't move, they actually start acting out their dreams physically. So they start walking around the laboratory and they start getting into fights with imaginary enemies. Um, but of course, this kind of research raises tremendous ethical <laughs> questions. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would assume so. Um, gotcha. Uh, what, so what are the philosophical implications that you, you pull from this? Um, I, you know, I understand that, you know, dreaming obviously is important, but it seems that your long-term project has more to do with animal consciousness in general. What are the implications? Um, what, what does dreaming tell us about consciousness? Yeah, you're right that for me, this project, I mean, obviously it's about both things since it's about the dreams of animals, but what, what guides me is my interest in the animal mind, uh, more so than the philosophy of dreams more generally. Um, which is something that a lot of philosophers have written about ever since Aristotle and even before. And in the book, I argue that once you look at the scientific evidence, so it begins from a scientific step, which is look at the evidence that we have to believe that other animals dream. Once you accept that, then you take another step up the ladder, which is what does this mean philosophically? And so you there have to switch gears from merely thinking about research that other people have done in laboratories or in the field to start mobilizing philosophical concepts to try to make sense of what the science is telling you. And the way in which I do that is by using three concepts that I think are illuminated about the animal mind when we look at the dreams of animals. That was a really complicated sentence. My apologies. No. I, I just realized I had about three semicolons <laughs> in there in the structure of that sentence. Um, the, the, the point is, is you it, have you got three concepts. Yeah. I, I, I tracked at the end. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, uh, you know, you can um, take the boy out of a purely philosophical um, space, but you can never take the <laughs> philosophical lingo out of the boy. Um, yeah, our training ruins our ability to communicate. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, that's so true. It was, <laughs> but yeah, so the short answer is three things. And I talk about these in the middle of the book. The first one is that I think we learn a lot about animal subjectivity, about what it means to be aware. And by awareness here, I don't mean anything very complicated. I don't mean high-end cognition. I don't mean sophisticated human style language. 
I just mean being the kind of subject that is aware of being at the center of a world, of an eye that is here and that is surrounded by a phenomenal landscape or a phenomenal logical landscape. That, that's a better way to put it. Or, so, so some people call that sentience. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, or like you can think of it in terms of like uh, an agent, uh, an eye. It might not be able to even formulate an eye, but there is like some... It might not have that language capacity, but it has that concept. Uh, that might even be too strong, too. But I, yeah, helping people understand. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's, I mean, and I yeah, we see this with dogs all the time. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. No, I think you're right that you don't need to have the word right. self. And you don't even need to have the concept, the conceptual abstraction of an I right. in order to have the experience of being a subject that is in the world. Right. Um, and, and, and that's one of my big critiques of the history of philosophy, that we have conflated the having of a concept with the thing itself. Um, and, and that's why historically animals have not made the cut when it comes to any of these terms that we use to police the boundary between you know, entities that matter and entities that don't. And so, yeah, I think we learn a lot about what it means to be a subject of experience. Let's just put it that way. Um, a subject of experience who is sentient and aware of the world. The second concept that I think we learn a lot about through the dreams of animals is animal affect or animal emotion. Now, this is a somewhat controversial point and not everybody agrees with me on this point, but I believe that dreams, all dreams, are inherently, inevitably emotional to some degree. And that is because there is a very close connection between dreaming and memory. We dream about things that we've experienced in the past, whether that's short-term memory or long-term memory. But then the things that make it into memory are things that are emotionally stamped by our minds and bodies, right? We remember things that affect us, that make us feel good or bad. And so... Whenever we replay those past episodes in a dream, we don't relate to them as completely passive, disinterested observers watching a movie that we couldn't care less about. We are fully invested in, in our dreams. And, and so I talk about animal, uh, animal emotions and animal sentiments in connection to dreams. And there is no clearer indication of the connection between those two than, than animal nightmares. Mm. Uh, we know that many other animals experience truly intense nightmares, often in the wake of trauma. And uh, you know, one, one funny thing that has happened since the publication of the book, which just was released about a week ago, is I've now received a handful of emails from um, readers just sharing with me the stories of their traumatized pets uh, and saying, I had never really known what to do with this, but the book helped me put that into perspective. Um, people sharing stories, for example, about dogs that, that have regular night terrors or cats that can't sleep um, for months after, after a traumatic encounter with, say, a dog or with a wild coyote. Um, and, and so there, there is... Um, there's a window here into the emotions of other animals, both positive and negative. And 
Finally, the third category that I talk in the book as philosophically significant in connection to the dreams of other species is cognition and metacognition. Um, and so here we just have to think about the fact that dreams are mental acts. Um, and some people would define them as, as um, beliefs. I, I don't think that's the best way to define a dream. Um, in fact, I think that's probably quite uh, a limited category. But through dreams, we can learn about the cognitive uh, capacities of other animals, about memory, um, about imagination. There's a whole chapter in the book devoted to animal imagination, um, where, where I explore what it means about the animal mind that various animals can literally invent a world and then live in it in the middle of of the sleep cycle. You know, it's it's unfathomable that they have that power, especially if you begin from that assumption of human superiority that we that we talked about a few minutes ago. So anyways, those are the three categories that I that I try to illuminate in the book. Um, awareness or subjectivity, emotion, and then cognition slash metacognition. Yeah, absolutely. Um and, and it's it's funny as you were talking, uh, I was like immediately I think when you say that they, you know, people disagree about whether dreams are emotional, uh, they aren't, they're thinking about specific emotions that they often have in dreams. And it's very clear that fear plays like one is an emotion and it very like, I mean, we've, I think anyone who has a dog or a cat has seen these kind of uh, emotions playing out. Um, I don't know why I did air quotes, but you know, just. Yeah, you know, for YouTube, just to make things exciting, uh, didn't make any sense. Uh, but uh, the other one, uh, the other emotion I thought of would be excitement, right? And um, especially in terms of very difficult uh, problem solving, uh, we see this in humans. Um, I don't know if you've ever uh, yourself or known someone who's solved a problem in a dream that they've been working very hard on. Um, I had a friend who just told me about how he took a modal logic class and, uh, he was stuck and he couldn't figure it out. And then he solved a 50 step proof in his dream and woke up and was able to do modal logic. Right. Like, uh, and it's really, yes, which is yes. like, uh, I've had friends who like started dreaming in Greek when they, uh, when they were taking language classes. And the reason I bring up the excitement one and I bring up that kind of both emotion and the, the creative act, right? The, the cognition, metacognition, um, is that's, that's your first example of the octopus, right? Is that mm -hmm. it's, it was all of the behaviors that would be accompanied by hunting, right? And that would, that would right, pick off right. all of these sorts of things. Um, if you don't mind, uh, can you, and maybe you, maybe you did mention this, I just missed it. What would be the difference between cognition and metacognition for our, our, mm -hmm. for our listeners and, well, really for me? So, <laughs> Yeah, and I, I should have defined that um, when introducing them. But you can think of cognition just as the capacity to form uh, perceptions and thoughts about the world. So we can use it just as synonymous with thinking, having um, a kind of mental a mental reality that illuminates your behavior or that guides your behavior. Metacognition uh, comes from the Greek root meta, which means uh, above or beyond. Um, and so metacognition just refers to when you think 
about thinking itself. You know, people often use the phrase that's so meta to think about a higher level reflection. And so in the context of the philosophy of mind and the philosophy of language uh, more generally, people often, well, let's just stick to the philosophy of mind so as to not complicate things. Metacognition refers to certain mental states where you take another mental state as the object of the first mental state. Right. Um, so the mind basically turns upon itself and thinks about itself. So let me just give a very clear example. If I start asking myself, oh, do I really know the answer to this math problem or do I not? You know, that's a metacognitive act because I'm, I'm thinking about my own thinking. How certain am I about my mathematical knowledge? Now, like language, like tool use, like morality, like empathy, metacognition has been one of those policing concepts because it just taps into this common sense intuition that we tend to have by virtue of the kind of culture that we grow up in, which is thinking that obviously other animals don't have that. There's just no way that another animal would think about its own thinking. And it is true that other animals don't think about their own thinking in the exact same way that we do, using the language and the concepts and the categories that we use when doing that. But there has been an explosion of research in the animal cognitive and behavioral sciences since the 1990s, showing that actually a pretty large, well, a, a good number of animals display metacognitive capacities. Hmm. And uh, that includes cetaceans, whom I've mentioned already, uh, whales and dolphins. It includes a lot of mammals. It definitely includes non-human primates like chimpanzees, but it even includes um, animals, again, distant from us, like birds. Um, there are a lot of different species of birds that clearly reflect on their own thinking before acting. And uh, I've been, I'm not a scientist myself, but I've been truly impressed by the cleverness of some scientific experiments into the animal mind. And some of the most clever ones, I think, are those that shed light on metacognition. Um, and so by now we know that the old story, according to which only humans think about their own thoughts, is, is no longer sustainable and is very difficult to square off with, with the empirical science that is now on the ground. And so in the book, I talk about this distinction between cognition and metacognition through dreams, because there are two kinds of dreams. Most of our dreams are dreams where we are, you know, we don't really know what's going on. Um, it's weird. It's bizarre. We're not in possession of all of our thinking capacities. You know, like something really illogical happens and we're like, yeah, I guess that's the way the world is. Um, I just accept it at face value. Um, and so people often say that most of our dreams leave us cognitively impaired because we're not really like our cognition is kind of we let the guards down. But then there is a very specific kind of dream known as lucid dreams where suddenly we regain our cognitive capacities. And in the middle of a dream, we start thinking about the dream itself. And that's that doubling of consciousness. Um, and this is probably the most speculative part of the book. And I, I call it that in the book. I say, watch out, we're about to enter some speculative territory. 
still guided by empirical science, but I'm about to take off a little bit from the ground. And so in the book, I also talk about the possibility of lucid dreaming in other animals, especially those species that we know can do metacognitive maneuvers in the waking state. Um, but it's just really tricky uh, to say anything very concrete about that. Okay, so that's part of the reason I asked you about metacognition, because you, you mentioned that people struggle with the effective side. I was like, to me, that was obvious. The metacognition... I could see it in other things. In the dream one, that definitely seems like it'd be difficult. And the dream side of things, difficult to prove. Mm -hmm. Can you give some examples of metacognition that is that wouldn't be dreaming? So I, I, you know, I maybe we're in the realm of like the the continually more difficult uh, tool problems they've given to ravens. Is it that are we in that sort of area or? Yes. Yeah. So that's a really good um, example. And it's part of a larger research paradigm in the animal sciences, which is to give animals a problem so that they learn how to fix it or solve it. Um, and then you increase the difficulty of the problem. And then you observe how animals respond to that rising level of difficulty. And so, for example, you might ask them to differentiate between two pictures of high resolution and then you start lowering the resolution so that the pictures are blurrier and blurrier and blurrier until it's actually kind of difficult. And what's really interesting is that animals, not all animals, of course, uh, you know, yes, definitely uh, birds and non-human primates have been at the forefront of this kind of research. What they show is that they start hesitating at a certain point. Right? They start hesitating, and if at the beginning you also teach them that they have three choices, they can either choose A or B, like this picture or this picture, but then if you int introduce a third option, which essentially means I don't really know this time, by the time it reaches a certain level of difficulty and crosses into, into it, it crosses that threshold, the animal starts pushing the I don't know button. Uh, and if you correlate those buttons, yes, no, and I don't know, with certain rewards, you come to the realization that they start saying, I don't know, precisely at the moment at which it's technically the rational thing to do, because they can get maybe half of a grape as opposed to no grape at all. And so that kind of what is called metacognitive monitoring, that's the technical term in the sciences for this, means that the animals are monitoring their own level of certitude, their own level of knowledge, and they're able to act on that metacognitive reflection. But that's only one of, of multiple examples. But I think it's a it's a it's a it's a really good one. And again, you know, my 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 I, I was gonna say my condolences, but that's exactly the opposite term. My props or what what is it? My congratulations um, to a lot of scientists who have done really fascinating yeah. um uh, protocols in this regard, just truly, truly um, thought provoking. I, I watched, um, yeah, I homeschool my sons and uh, we were watching something about ravens and tools and the way that they uh, will immediately solve a problem. And then when they up the difficulty, they would stop and they would look back and forth. And then they would be not, they weren't just sitting there just like moving it until it worked. Right. And it wasn't even a problem you could solve that way. It was, it was so clear that they were thinking about the problem. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely 
uh, fascinating to me. Um, and it, as, as you've mentioned, it's raised some very difficult, um, it, it raises, I, I wouldn't say difficult uh, moral questions. I mean, I don't know that there's a lot of moral questions that are easy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, we yeah. would be out of a job. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, and I think part of the reason we have a hard time with metacognition in general is it's very hard to measure in any way. Um, just because we, it's hard mm -hmm. to measure other minds and consciousness. And so, um, if that, if that makes sense, like it's one of those things we just kind of mm -hmm. take for granted, uh, as we look at, um, uh, what you're discussing here, do you think that there is, uh, can you talk about qualitative versus quantitative differences in consciousness? Do you think that this is almost exclusively quantitative, like a question of degree? Or do you think that there are cases where there's a, an essential difference in consciousness uh, but, uh, kind of on that scale? I mean, I'm not going to disagree that animals have consciousness. I mean, I think that's... You'd have to come up with a very specious example <laughs> of consciousness. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like, well, it's when they, you know, really enjoy, I don't know, like... Uh, they can enjoy baseball yeah. or something. Yeah, when they yeah. make podcasts, <laughs> yes, that's yeah, what it means. Exactly. Yes, yes. Uh, and then, of course, <laughs> someone would have an animal that like would make podcasts or something. But um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so not arguing that animals don't have consciousness. Do you see any uh, in your research? Do you see anything qualitative uh, about like like is there a jump in consciousness or is it largely quantitative? For me, it really is a matter of degree. Yeah. If the question is about consciousness as it exists spread throughout the animal kingdom, um, of course, it might be that there is a qualitative jump. Yeah. The moment that the first animals in the in evolutionary history became early stage conscious, like the first perception. True. Um, and and you know the the origin of consciousness, of course, is a it's a, is an extremely tricky, um philosophical and scientific problem that that sometimes requires you to think in terms of a leap before there was nothing but matter suddenly you have life and then suddenly after that you have sentience and those have to be um leaps the question of whether they're radical leaps or gradual leaps that's you know th that's debated by people who specialize in that and so once you accept that there is consciousness in nature so we're not talking about the origin of consciousness but rather the spread of consciousness. For me, that really is a question of, of degree. And here I'm following 19th century naturalists who believe that, like Charles Darwin. And if you read many of, of Darwin's books, he makes it very clear that most of the things that we tend to think are so special about us exist in a modified version in other animals. Um, so for example, he writes a lot about other animals having concepts. Um, and about other animals having emotions and about other animals forming social bonds like friendship um, or even love or attraction. And so I don't see how one could argue that there's a, a radical leap that only leaves us, you know, this one animal out of the millions of species that exist in nature on one side of the line and then all the other ones on the other side. And as you point out, you can do that separation if you really want, but the problem is that you have to raise the bar so high 
that at some point it becomes painfully clear that the bar itself is arbitrary, right? Like I could argue, well, only humans make baba ganoush and open panda expresses. Well, yeah, that's right, but who cares, right? Like that's an arbitrary category. Um, once you start talking about the categories that seem to carry some, some weight, like morality, communication, language, empathy, recent tools, it, it really is not feasible to, to argue that all humans and only humans have it. That's, that's, that's a move that I have never been able to see anybody make successfully in relation to any of these categories. I think what you said about raising the bar, um, there's, the, there's the arbitrary part of it. If you were to make it something fundamental, I think in a way that excluded animals, I think the real problem that we would run into is that it would um, uh, we would be excluding some humans, and I think that would be. I, I think that's where people start to realize that this is an ethical commitment we don't want to make. Um, as for a silly example of this, without getting you know too dark about it, uh, definitely um, when you talk to park rangers and they talk about why do you keep creating trash cans that grizzly bears can get into. And the response is normally there's a tremendous amount of overlap between a smart bear and a dumb camper, right? Like <laughs> it's it's true. It's like like you literally see these bears were able to get in, and the and like there are people who can't figure it out. And it's uh, so that that uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and there's some interesting it, everything you're talking about with animals, and I, and I don't know if our listeners necessarily catch this is stuff that can be applied to broader questions too. Um, I don't know if you know uh, Dr. Joel Reynolds, um, but uh, he- Joel, yeah, I've, I've co-authored with him. Oh, okay. So he- uh, Yeah, from Georgetown? I think, I believe so. I, he's in- Yeah, I know. We're very good friends. I actually just saw him uh, a week ago. He came to visit me in Paris. Yes, uh, yes, okay, <laughs> we're, we're graduate school friends. Oh, awesome. <laughs> uh, he mentioned you, the part of the reason I brought up is he mentioned you in his book, um, uh, shoot, it's escaped me. The one he just wrote on philosophy of disability. Um, yes, the life worth living. That's right, the life worth living. And uh, I mean, and that's where talking about uh, these kind of questions are like they start to conflate because uh, I, I remember, and I, I don't want to say who it was um, because he was saddened by it, and I think he just realized that uh, <laughs> he didn't have the answer. But um, he was defining. Uh, humans as rational beings. And I was like, does that mean that, you know, people who are cognitively impaired, are they less human? And he just like the class got dead quiet. And he looked at me and he was like, uh, I don't want to talk about that. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, go ahead. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think you, you're right. I mean, the, the argument that you're pointing to has a technical name in the animal studies field, but also in the animal rights literature. And that's the, the argument from marginal cases. That's what the argument is called. It's referred to in that way in publications. And it basically makes that claim that in order for you to really delineate and just demarcate humans, you raise the bar so much that inevitably some humans are going to fall out of the community of moral agents yep. or moral uh, subjects. And then if you lower the bar to include those humans, then inevitably some animals are going to um, make the cut as well. You just yeah. cannot, unless you start doing some kind of um, 
philosophical um, gerrymandering where you're just like drawing the line in a really arbitrary, politically motivated way, yeah. you're not going to be able to to market off. Yeah. The, the one thing I, I will want to emphasize here is that this is really unstable terrain conceptually. It's it's quite dangerous because it hinges on drawing analogies between some humans um, who are you know are already carrying the burden of marginalization, uh, like uh, the disabled community. Um, sometimes people also point to uh, infants, children, um, and animals or people of color as well. And the the thing here is that. On the one hand, and this is the this is the danger, right? On the one hand, these communities have been historically dehumanized precisely by being compared to animals. There is a long history of animalization. Right. Um, yeah, you know, this, like, there is the discourse of um, black men and women as uh, animals, of immigrants as animals, of the disabled as animal-like, and so there is that danger. And on the other hand, there is also this this way of of utilizing that analogy on political grounds rather than on essential grounds to say well once you establish an arbitrary criteria uh, criteria criterion and then try to like hit people over the head with it or just not people if you try to push that category um you end up hurting a lot of sentient beings, and that includes some humans, and that includes some non-humans, um, because our political categories do end up shaping how we relate to one another as humans, but also how we relate to other animals. So it's it just it's just a tricky terrain yes. to walk, um, and I've seen people enter that terrain without acknowledging at least the dangers and the difficulties. So that's why I raised that. Oh me. no, absolutely. As, as you were saying, I was like. Thank you for bringing that up because uh, this is me, uh, you know, in new terrain. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And uh, obviously you've been here. That's why I should be listening more and, and talking less. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, yeah. not at all. Uh, when I said I've seen people, yeah. uh, you said kind of carelessly, I mean, people who have been in this terrain for much longer than me. Um, and uh, and it, it it's just a difficult um, uh area, yeah. but it is an area that, as I mentioned, is common enough that it has a name and it's the argument for marginal cases. And even, the, you know, it's even a yucky term, like marginal cases, like who are the marginals <laughs> here? It, you know, the terrible choice of, of terminology. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, the One of the ones, and you were talking about how we measure consciousness and how it's impossible or possible and uh, uh, did it. So we, we talked about how it crosses over into disability studies, but another one is AI and kind of like the Turing test mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And so that definitely uh, occurred to me as well. So it, it's, this is a very uh, uh, fertile uh, area of research. It's really fascinating to me. Um, so one, I want to say thank you for coming on. This has been absolutely awesome. Uh, and two, uh, is there anything um, that you would like to leave our listeners with? Uh, a, a way to move forward, a way to uh, grow in their understanding of this field? Yeah, I, I like that you brought AI because it is 
a new discourse that is uh, spreading quickly and the stakes are becoming clearer as time goes by. Um, initially, I was going to have an entire chapter on AI dreams because there has been um, there have been a few protocols, a, a few um, developments in AI trying to produce dreaming machines. Um, because of what I mentioned earlier, which is that I think dreams are fundamentally emotional and they have to do with feelings and embodiment, I am of the view that it's not something that I would expect an artificial intelligence to be able to do. Mm. Um, and, and so maybe I, I am somewhat conservative in that I, I do see this as an organic phenomenon um, for carbon-based rather than silicon-based organisms. Um, but I, I want to keep an open mind about where AI takes takes us in the next um, few years and few decades. Um, but but I do think that there is something unique to organicity and life um, as we know it up until now. So that that's to be determined where where that goes. I ended up taking that chapter out because I, I came to the conclusion that it just didn't fit in and it would complicate things unnecessarily. But where I would leave listeners um, is just with um, an invitation to, to start thinking a little bit more um, about the lives of the animals that surround them. I, I know that we all encounter animals. Some of them are wild. Some of them are domestic. Uh, some of them look back at us. Some of them ignore us. And there is an element of magic in in animal-animal interactions. That includes interactions between two human animals where we have to figure out what the other is thinking and feeling without having access to, um, to their mind. And I think something similar happens with other species. There can be extremely meaningful, almost world-disclosing, world-disclosing encounters as long as you let yourself be taken up in that exchange. Um, but it does require cultivating a certain curiosity about other animals while at the same time recognizing that there are very clear limits to what we can know about other species. And um, after having written this book, I am painful, I am not painfully, I am gladfully or gladly, that's the term, I'm gladly aware of those limits. Um, and it's about navigating, you know, possibility and limitation in connection to another mind. Yeah, I think really it's that that curiosity and that openness, and I think that's just the case for for moving forward in the truth. And I, and I loved how you talked about this with the thread. It's like uh, you, you're never going to fully capture truth, right? You're going to you're going to build things up and then realize you have to tear some down a little bit and rebuild it. So I love that. Um, and so uh, let me say thank you, and uh, I've had a great time. Thank you very much. <laughs>